You're listening to the Grace Covenant East Lincoln Audio Podcast. How many questions have you been asked this past week? If you're a mom, you'd say, I've been asked a lot of questions. And and then I wonder, uh, what kinds of questions might you have been asked this week? And I can safely say that I think probably a large portion of the questions you were asked were simple questions. Questions like, uh, what time is it? What's for dinner? Uh, Mom, when will we get there? Uh, Here's two favorites. Have you seen my phone? Have you seen my keys? Right? Those are just some simple questions. They don't require a lot of us. You know, we can just answer them without a lot of thought. But then there are other questions that we would be asked, maybe a little bit more serious in nature, that they cause us to, to think just a little more. Questions like this. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? That's a little blast from the past for those who don't know what I'm talking about. Ask mom and dad. Uh, The point is, there are certain questions where we have to stop and we have to think. We we really have to think about it. And then there are questions that we might have been asked this week or that were asked at various times that are much more serious in nature. Uh, And depending on our answer to those questions, uh, those those questions could be actually life-changing. Now, I want us to think beyond just this past week. I want us to think in in broader terms. In fact, I want us to think in uh, whole life terms. Um, When you think of your entire life, what is the most important question that you will ever be asked? What's the most crucial question that you will ever be asked in your lifetime? And I have an answer for you. I believe... In fact, I know that the most important question that you will ever be asked in your entire lifetime is the same question that Jesus asked of his disciples. And we find it in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus is with the disciples one day. They're out, they're they're walking, they're talking, and Jesus stops and he says, men, I have a question for you. There's something that I want to ask you. And so the men are very attentive. They're, they're, They're watching, they're listening. And Jesus says, as you're out and about, Who do you hear people saying that I am? Who do people say that I am? And so I imagine there's a bit of silence and the men uh, stop and and they think for a moment. And then one of them raises their hand and he says, oh, last week I was with a group of people and I heard them say, uh, Jesus, that Jesus is John the Baptist. And somebody else raises their hand and they they say, yeah, I, I heard that. But I also heard someone say they think that you're Elijah. And then somebody else raises their hand. They go, yeah, we've heard all that. Plus, we've heard people say they think you're Jeremiah. And then somebody else raises their hand and they says, we've heard all of those. But we've also heard people say they think that you're one of the prophets of God. And Jesus is listening attentively. There's a moment of silence. And then in my imagination, I believe that he looks each of the disciples in the eye as he makes his way around the circle. And he says this, he asks this question, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? This is one of those questions that's serious, most serious in nature. It causes a lot of thought, and it's life-changing depending on the answer. As the men think about it, of course, Peter's in the crowd, so Peter raises his hand and he goes, Sir, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, You have answered correctly. And you did not learn this by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. 
the most crucial question that we will ever be asked in our entire life is the question that says, that asks, who do you say that Jesus is? What makes this question so important? What raises it to such prominence? Well, it's raised to such prominence because it's a life-changing question. Think about this. If Jesus is who the Bible portrays him to be, and if Jesus is who he says he is, and these things are true, then the belief in those things causes us to believe And the only right response that we can have is to trust Jesus with our entire life. But on the other hand, if Jesus is not who the Bible portrays him to be, and if Jesus is not who he says he is, then being a Christian is actually of little value because we've been following a fictional character. Here's the great news We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's the very breath of God. So when it speaks these words about Jesus, we know that it's true. We we can accept them as fact. And we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And because of that, we can experience life. Life in his name. That's what raises this question to such great prominence. I wonder... If when John was writing his gospel, the gospel of John, if possibly he had Peter's confession in mind as he was writing. And perhaps the answer to that question could be found near the end of John's gospel in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. In fact, would you take your Bibles out and when you op- would you open them up to John chapter 20? Your Bible, your phone, your tablet, ever how you may get there. Just get there. (laughs) John chapter 20. I want to read to you verses 30 and 31. In my Bible, the heading says, The Purpose of John's Gospel. In verse 30, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is not trying to portray Jesus as simply a good man or a good teacher or uh, one of the prophets of God. Instead, he specifically wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was prophesied of in the Old Testament. John's gospel is uh, a selective eyewitness account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in John's gospel, he wants us to know who Jesus is and believe in Jesus as he is. He wants us to know and to understand that by believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we have life. And when he speaks of life, he's not just speaking of life. He's speaking of the fullness of life that can only come through Jesus Christ. He's speaking of the fullness of life that leads to eternal life. It's life like no other can offer, like we will find nowhere else. That's the purpose of John's gospel. So you may have guessed by now the new series that we're launching into is a a study in the Gospel of John. Um, Beginning today, 
and for uh, several weeks to come, uh, actually all the way through uh, Easter weekend, Resurrection weekend, we're going to be looking at significant portions of the Gospel of John, specifically miracles that John highlights in the Gospel. When we do a study of the Gospel of John, what we find is that uh, John doesn't record all of the miracles. We actually read that in John 20, 30, 31. He says, this isn't all of the miracles, but the ones I'm recording, I'm writing so that you might believe and that you might have life. And so we're going to look at the seven miracles that Jesus, that John draws out uh, about Jesus. And those miracles are uh, where we're going to begin today. The first miracle is that wedding uh, uh, miracle, uh, the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine. And then John draws our attention to the fact that Jesus heals the son of a man who is a very important man. He's just referred to as an official. And then he draws our attention uh, to the miracle of Jesus healing a man who was paralyzed. He draws our attention to the fact that Jesus did this miracle of feeding more than 5,000 people with very limited resources. And then he draws our attention to the fact that Jesus walked on the water. Has anybody walked on water in the past little while? That's truly a miracle. And then he draws our attention to the fact that Jesus heals a, my, a man who was born blind. And then finally, he draws our attention. He focuses on the fact that Jesus healed, uh, rose, uh, caused a man who was dead to raise up from, from death. That was Lazarus. We're going to look at that. We're going to focus on it because that's what he does. So what's the purpose of it all, though? What's the purpose of the series? Well, throughout the weeks, as we look at the Gospel of John, uh, we want to be reminded, we want to have a greater understanding of the fact that God is still the God of the miraculous today. It hasn't stopped. If anyone's tried to convince you that God's power uh, in the miraculous is no longer needed, look around you. It's needed and it still happens today. It did not cease. And we want to gain a greater understanding in the weeks of, to come that uh, God still wants to reveal his miraculous power in our lives. It's not for somebody else out there, but he wants to work his miraculous power in us. And as we take a look at the miracles in the Gospel of John, uh, we want to be reminded that, um, that as we draw close to Jesus, that we can experience that miracle working power. In other words, God is constantly at work in our lives and he's always working for our good. We can count on that. So if we're going to talk about miracles, I think a, a word about miracles would be good to help us in the study. Miracles are spectacular, right? Miracles are miraculous. We're drawn to the miraculous. We like to see it. We like to hear about it. But it's important that as we're working through the miracles found in John, we're not seeking miracles. The purpose is not to cause us to seek out miracles but instead, it's to cause us to have a greater desire to be like Jesus. To gain a greater understanding of who Jesus is. Because here's what I can guarantee. If we will seek Jesus with all of our hearts, with a desire to become like him, because becoming like him, we know that he is this exact image of his father. So we're becoming like the father. If we will make that our desire, then what we're going to find we don't have to seek miracles, but we're going to find ourselves living in the midst of the miraculous power of God working in our lives and working in the lives of the people around us through us. You believe that? We only have to seek him. So um, I want you to take out your Bibles and I want you to turn to John chapter 2. You may already be in John if you held your place. Um, 
let me just tell you a little bit about your teaching notes. Your teaching notes are a little different this week. Um, instead of one page, there's several pages. And they're, um, they're um, set up so that they can help you go deeper in, at home. And so you find the teaching notes on the inside and then on the back side, going deeper. Some stuff you could just work through at home to help you continue to go into it. And so I would really encourage you to do that. Um, I want to read to you uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, uh, where this is the miracle where Jesus turns the water into wine. And after I read it, we're going to talk a little bit about the circumstances that surrounded that miracle. And then what do we draw from it? So follow along as I begin in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, uh, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much wine to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what's going on? What, 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 what's the context? What's happening in the story? Well, obviously Jesus, his mother Mary, and the disciples have all been invited to participate in this wedding feast. Um, they're there, they're enjoying the feast, and suddenly uh, Mary comes to Jesus with a question. One of the things that we need to recognize about Mary is it's believed that Mary had something to do with arranging the events of this wedding feast. Um, it's believed that she probably had some role of authority by the mere fact that she directed the servants to do whatever Jesus told them to do. And so uh, she recognizes that there's a crisis. They're at this wedding feast and the wine has run out. So she looks at Jesus and she says, we have no more wine. And Jesus says, and I have to say this, he says, woman, what does that have to do to me? And I think we often get, we misunderstood that, that, that woman, uh, he's not saying, woman, why are you bothering me? It, it, it's not that at all. It was very appropriate in that culture. And it was actually very respectful. He was saying, woman, mother, why are you telling me about this right now? My time hasn't come. Nevertheless, a bit of time later, Jesus went into action. He told the servants to take some ceremonial jugs that usually are used for ceremonial washing. They're empty. He says, I want you to take those jugs and I want you to go fill them with water. The scripture told us that they hold between 20 and 30 gallons each. And so the servants did what Jesus told them to do. They took those jugs and they filled them with water and they brought them back. And then Jesus says, I want you to draw some of the water out. And I want you to take it to the kind of master of the ceremonies, the host of the feast. Can you imagine being uh, one of those servants at that point in time? Okay, um, I went here and I got water. 
and I came here and it was still water and he's telling me to take some water to this man and try to convince him that it's wine. I don't know about this, but they did it. They did it. So they drew some water out, uh, probably put it in a goblet or something. They took it to the, to the host of the wedding, the master of ceremonies, and they said, uh, here, here's, here's, Jesus told me to give this. Remember, it was Jesus told us to give this to you. And so the, the, the master, the host, he, he takes it, and he drink. Can you imagine those servants as it's getting closer and closer to its mouth? They're like, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going to lose my job over this. And he, he takes a drink and he, he's, oh my goodness. His response is, this is incredible. This, this, is, this is great wine. This is so, I've never tasted anything this good. And he calls for the bridegroom and he says, this is an amazing thing that you've done. Typically, what happens is the good wine is served first. And then when everybody's tipsy and they don't care, you bring out the cheap stuff because they're just thinking, I just want more wine. I just want more wine. He said, but you've saved the best for last. Isn't that just like Jesus, though? That he always even has something better for us. I've often wondered, and I've asked this question and or speculated in the other two services, just when did the water turn into wine? Was it, um, was it as they began to take uh, the water and pour it into to the large jugs? Was it as it was going in, was it turning into wine? Or, or maybe it was turning into wine while they were walking back to Jesus. Just something happened and suddenly it's wine. Or, or maybe it's when they touched the ladle to draw some out to take to the master uh, 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 of, the, of the celebration. Or, or maybe, again, it was while they were walking with that goblet back to the master that somehow it turned it, it, into wine. Or maybe it was on its, it changed into wine while it was on its way to the master's mouth. Or maybe it was just when it touched its lips that at that moment it became wine. And we'll never know the answer to that question, at least here. But what we know is Jesus did the undeniably miraculous. He took water... And he turned it into wine. Here's the bottom line. Uh, Jesus took what was a crisis at a wedding feast and he turned it into an opportunity for celebration. Jesus took what could have been a point of public shame and he used it as the backdrop for his very first miracle. Now again, it's important to say the crucial thing is not the miracle. But listen to this. It's the lesson to be learned from the miracle. And that's how it should be always for us. When we see miracles happen, we should give glory to God for that. But then we have to ask, what's the lesson to be learned through the miracle that is occurring in my life or the life of someone else around me? God, what do you want to teach me? Um, if, and this is true, if John wanted us to see Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Anointed One, the one who was prophesied of in the Old Testament, if Jesus, if John wanted us to uh, know who Jesus is and believe on Him, in Him as He is, then how does this first miracle contribute to what John 
is trying to accomplish in his gospel. So let's talk about that for a few moments. Uh, I believe this miracle is important because it reveals the divine nature of Jesus. Again, John's not just trying to present Jesus as a good man, a good teacher. He's not even trying to present him as one who has the ability to work miracles. Instead, he's revealing that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he's revealing that Jesus uh, is the one whom after he was baptized by John the Baptist, heard his father speak from heaven and say, this is the God, the creator of the universe who says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So as it relates to divine nature, John was revealing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah, the one that has been waited for, the one that was prophesied of. We also know the miracle is important because it tells us that uh, Jesus is concerned with the small stuff. Um, Now, I think you'll agree with me, unless you're a parent that's getting ready to have a wedding reception or something, that in the scope of all of the things that can happen in life, honestly, running out of wine at a wedding reception is not that big of a deal. In the scope of all the things that can happen, just think of it, it's not really a big deal. Now, it seemed to be a very big deal for Mary that day because she had, she was maybe the the event planner. Um, And I'm sure if the bride and groom knew that the wine was uh, depleted, that it would have been a big deal for them because this is their day. This is their, their, it was a seven days. This was their celebration. But again, in the scope of all the crucial things that can happen in life, running out of wine at a wedding feast is not that big of a deal. Yet, Jesus was there. Jesus was present. He understood that it was a big deal to those who were there and he acted. He did something about it. He made sure that there was plenty of wine on hand. And again, he did it in an undeniably miraculous way. You know, the same is true for you and I. God is present in the big, but God is also present in the small. And there's no detail of our life. There's no circumstance or situation of our life that is too small that Jesus doesn't take concern and care for. He's just as concerned with the mundane details of life as he is with the big. He's always at work. He's always present. He's working for our good. Uh, This miracle is important because uh, it it reveals why Jesus came and what he came to do. Um, That day at the wedding, um, Jesus was the solution to the crisis of there's no more wine. But on a much more important, a much more lifetime scale, for us today, we know that Jesus is actually the solution for all of humanity's problems. And humanity's problems stem from one problem, and that's a sin problem. And Jesus came to take care of our sin problem. And through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he overcame sin and he overcame death so that you and I, by believing in Jesus, are reconciled to God. We have uh, true righteousness. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. 
And that when God looks at us, he sees us through Jesus because we've been justified. We've been made right before him. That's what he came to do. I want you to take your Bibles one more time. And I want you to turn to a passage of scripture in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I don't want you to just take my word for why Jesus came. Let's see what the Bible says. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 12 through 17. I'll let you get there. I hear pages turning. I love that. Don't be afraid of the silence. In verse 12, it says, I thank, this is Paul writing, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Listen to verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Did you catch it? It says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In other words, Christ Jesus came into the world to be the solution for humanity's problem. And that problem is a a sin problem. That's, That's the gift that we have. So here's what we know. We know that Jesus did his first miracle that day at the wedding of Cana. And we know that it wasn't his last miracle. As we look through John, we're going to see six more miracles that he performed. But even beyond that, what we come to realize is that, as we said earlier, uh, God is still through Jesus in the, in the miraculous work today. That, that, that he still desires to work the miraculous in our lives. So How do we set ourselves up for the miraculous? We'll take the last few minutes talking about that. I think the starting place is to recognize that God is the only one who can work miracles. But in almost every miracle, there's a human element involved. Take, for instance, the wedding at Cana and the miracle of turning the water into wine. Jesus revealed uh, the miracle of water being turned into wine um, after the servants had taken the water pots. And then brought them back to him. And after they had taken the water to the master of the, of the feast. So there was, there was a cooperation. Jesus didn't need the servants to do this. But he chose to involve them. And, and, and in order to be involved, they had to join in the work that he was doing at, at that moment. And the same is true for us. God chooses to involve us in his miraculous work. But we have to be willing to join in. And to join in uh, requires an act of obedience. That's what the servants did. They were obedient. Mary said, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And they, they, they did. Now, um, miracles occur when we recognize that obedience to God's word opens the way for God's work. Uh, the servants there that day, they probably didn't know a lot about Jesus. And um, they may have had blind belief. But they, they, there was a sense there that Jesus is up to something. And because Jesus is up to something, we're, gonna, we're just going to go with this. We're going to join in. We're going to join in with whatever he's doing right now. And the same is true for us. We have to recognize that God calls us to join in, to partner with him in his work of the miraculous. 
And in order to, to join in, we have to partner our faith and action. The servants that day took action. There was some kind of belief. And they took action on what Jesus said. And the same is true for us. We recognize that God is the God of the miraculous. He works the miraculous through Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we have to be willing to partner our faith in that fact and move out in action so that we can actually experience the miraculous or so that the others around us can experience it. One last thing I want to say. Making the way for the miraculous has a broader purpose than just a personal miracle. The purpose of the miraculous is for God's glory and so that more people will believe. Um, when you and I came into relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, the Bi- we've talked about this many times. The Bible says that something changed in us. Yes, we became new creations, but our citizenship changed. And we don't use kingdom talk much, but it says we became citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we have to develop through Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, a kingdom mindset. And a kingdom mindset says, this isn't just for me, but I want God to be glorified through this, and I want others to come to know Him and come to believe in Him. And so as God works miracles in our life, it's not about us. We get the benefits, but it's not about us. Other people see the power of God at work and it does something in their hearts. Let me ask you this morning as I'm closing, do do we believe that God is still the God of the miraculous? Do we believe that God still wants to reveal His miraculous power in our lives? Do we believe that God wants to reveal His miraculous power uh, in and through us as a Grace Covenant uh, East Lincoln campus family? So that the light of Jesus can be seen. So that the glory of God can be seen. Are we willing to partner faith and action so that that can happen? And be obedient to God's word. I, I personally believe. I don't know if you've caught this this year. But there's just some pretty incredible things that are happening in our campus family. There's, there's a stirring of, of, uh, in people's hearts for more for more of the work of God, for for more of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I have great confidence that as we move through this series, God is setting us up to see the miraculous happen in our midst. We don't get to define what that is, but we do get to know that God will be glorified and people will believe. Amen? Would you stand? I want to pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you're always at work in our lives, working for our good. We thank you for your power. We thank you that you are still the God of the miraculous that that hasn't stopped. And you want to work the miraculous in our lives. But even more so, we want to say we're thankful that you chose to work the miraculous in our lives so that you can be glorified and others can come to know you. I pray that you would help us live in that kingdom mindset. I I pray that we would be obedient to the words you speak to us and that we would set ourselves up for the miraculous so that the world might know who you are. 
Do your work in us as we surrender to you. We confess today we are all yours and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.